going to have our Bible reading now before James comes and speaks. So if you want to take your Bibles out and turn to Psalm 137. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardback black one in the P-rack in front of you. And in that copy, we are on page 521, 521. That's Psalm 137. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Okay, this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 137. And a little bit of disclaimer before we get there. Some of where we're heading, I recognize, is, is really quite heavy this morning. I think it's needed, but it is heavy. So if at the end you need to pray, you want to talk to someone, please reach out. Elders are here. They're people you know and love, people in your community group. Please do. We want to wrestle through some of this stuff together. Now, what we're going to find in Psalm 137 seems to be a musician maybe writing on behalf of the musicians in Israel, or of Israel, of Judah, dealing with mistreatment and the anger that bubbles up inside of them in the face of that mistreatment. So you see, what we have is a very specific kind of anger we see this morning in Psalm 137. It's anger in the face of mistreatment, the sense of injustice, the sense of offense, the genuine hurt. And I want to look at how the psalmist reasons through and processes through this rather deep and intense emotion of anger that they deal with. How do they wrestle through this? And here's what we're going to find. If you can condense it into a sentence this morning, I would say this. There is help and there is hope for our anger. There is help and there is hope for our anger. And the points Three points, very, very similar to last week, but you'll see they are different. They just sound similar. So the three points are we admit our anger, we direct our anger, and we turn our anger. Three key things we're going to see. Admit our anger, direct our anger, and we turn our anger. So I want to pray for the Lord's help before we dig in. So I'd love it if you'd pray with me just once more. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we know in your word we hear your voice. So, Lord, we surrender ourselves to what you have to say this morning. We want to hear you because we know when you speak, we change. So, Lord, make our hearts and minds like sponges to absorb and apply everything you have to say to us today. And we're praying in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. Well, earlier this week, I was in my favorite coffee spot, and it's the new Starbucks just behind the big Tesco. Some of you will know where that is. I love it there. I like, I don't, I'm not a coffee snob, but I don't like the coffee that much, but I get away with it because it's, what's it, £1.70 for a tall filter coffee, and then I get free refills, so I can be there for the whole morning. And I like the culture in this, this Starbucks. The, the music isn't too slow and depressing, and it's not too hard and heavy that I can't concentrate. It just seems to be just right to be able to read, to make phone calls if I have to, to meet with anyone for coffee, to write sermons. Unlike this Starbucks, and I go there quite a lot. I mean, we sometimes have some of our staff meetings in the Starbucks. It's great. So I was there early this week, standing in the line, and there was a bunch of other commuters in front of me, and early morning there's going to be a big line with people waiting for their coffee. And I'm standing there patiently, because I'm very good at standing in lines. I'm a good Brit. And I stand there and we stand in this line and, and somebody barges through the door, walks past the line, kind of crouches down to look at all of the sweet treats and the, 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 the croissants and things like that all there. And, and then they decide they don't want any of that. And then they walk to the front of the line. And I'm feeling a, a, a sense of justice well up inside. I didn't say anything, and neither did anyone else in the, in the line. People, some people were tutting, and some people were sighing. And then some people, I'm sure, were rolling their eyes, and nobody really did anything about it, because maybe it would have added 30 seconds onto our day, and we just let it go. So I finished at Starbucks, got stuff done, got in my car, got onto the A14, and headed back towards Ruffham. And as I was going past Sainsbury's, you know where the on-ramp to the A14 is, I was very polite, and I moved over into the right-hand lane to give space to the person who was coming onto the A14. But this person, very, very rude, went across and swung right out to the right lane straight away, and it felt like the back of their car missed my car by about that much. And I just, oh, I felt the sense of justice again. I felt angry. I feel like they shouldn't have done that. I feel just a little bit mistreated there. Now, now, this is true of most of our weeks, and I'm guessing the average week is going to contain moments like that. Small moments where we feel mistreated, we feel a sense of injustice against us, and a little bit of anger seems to well up inside of us. But we know, with just a little bit of rational thinking, just a few deep breaths, we bite our lip and count to ten, things will be okay and we'll get past it. We, we can go through that kind of a mistreatment and feel that low-grade kind of an anger, and we deal with it. At least we should. But we know in life that it's not just those small things that we face. It's not just those small things, people pushing in the line, pulling out in front of us on, on, on the A14 that make us upset and angry. We deal with bigger, more profound, and much more far-reaching kind of mistreatment. And we feel the anger and the injustice and the offense that comes with it. And what do I mean by that? Well, let's think of some examples. We, we can be misrepresented. I feel like that one happens a lot in adult life. You know the facts of the situation. You know the facts of what you've said. You know exactly what happened. And there'll be someone or some people misconstruing everything that you said. And you're painted in that light. You are misrepresented. And then when that happens, it really bothers me and makes me feel incredibly angry because I feel the offense and injustice of that. What about being rejected or neglected? If someone intentionally sidelines us or ignores us, we can feel that kind of injustice and anger begins to simmer away. What about abuse in all of its different forms? That's certainly a mistreatment. 
What, what about being, being unjustly criticized? Where something's said about you or to you that just isn't right. You feel angry. You feel the offense. You feel the injustice inside of you begin to well up. It bothers you. I know it all too well. What about bullying? Bullying. That's an injustice against us. That is a mistreatment. What about generally when someone just seems to take advantage of you and it's intentional and they seem to have no regard whatsoever for how you feel, how it hurts you, or what impact it has on your life? You see, the thing is, it's not just the small mistreatments that we deal with on an everyday. Throughout our life, we face some of the big mistreatments. And we know the anger that bubbles up inside of us. We know the injustice, we know the hurt, we know the sense of offense. But anger is a dangerous thing (laughs) because anger can poison us. Anger can distort our insides and rot us from the inside out. So anger in the face of mistreatment needs to be talked through. It needs to be dealt with. It needs to be processed. Now, now here's, a, here's a little bit of help, help us kind of define what we're talking about here. We're not talking about anger that comes from an injured pride. We're not talking about an anger that comes from a, an irritation and a frustration at our own sin and addiction. We're, we're not talking about anger at the systemic injustices in our world that need to be put right. We're specifically talking about anger in the face of mistreatment and how we need to process that. How do we do it? Well, in Psalm 137, we find exactly that going on. There is offense, there's injustice, there is mistreatment, and there's dealing with the emotions and the simmering anger that comes from that. And what we're going to see is two key obvious things that the psalmist does. Two key things, that the obvious things that the psalmist does. And one thing that I think is hidden in this psalm, that we can trace it through to the New Testament and it explodes in the life of Jesus Christ. So we're going to see three things, two obvious, one kind of hidden, but is a thread that takes us to Jesus in this psalm. And the three things we're going to see, what we do with our anger is we admit our anger, we direct our anger, and we turn our anger. Three key things to process this kind of of anger. So, so we've got Psalm 37 open in front of us. Why don't we set the scene by reading verse 1 here? I'll explain this. By the waters of Babylon, it reads, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Verse 2, on the willows there we hung up our lyres. So evidently this is somewhere in Babylon. And Babylon is an awful long way from a place called Zion that we read about there. Zion is is a name we read all out throughout the Bible. And Zion is the name given to the mountain upon which the temple was. So it's a very, very significant place for the psalmist. It's the place where worship happens. It's the place of God's presence. Zion is where where the temple resides. It's It's sacred. It's the most spiritual place. But they're in Babylon and they're weeping. I want to do a little bit of history homework here to help us understand and step into some of the mistreatment and anger that the psalmist is feeling. We have to kind of look far back in the Bible, beginning with Israel coming out of slavery from Egypt, eventually into their land. It's all been conquered, and then Israel begin to cry out for a king. Now, God should have been fine enough to be their king. They should have seen that, but they wanted a human king, and God gives them a king. His name is Saul. 
Now, Saul has an okay start, a really rubbish second half to his reign. And after Saul, we get to King David. Now, remember, David, we've said, he reaches legendary status in the history of Israel. Great king, certainly not perfect, makes some wild mistakes. We know that. And then after King David, we get Solomon, David's son. Solomon has a lot of wonderful traits and some really rubbish ones that end up tripping him up. But after the reign of Solomon, we see this united kingdom of Israel split into two. Next king, Rehoboam, makes crazy, crazy mistakes. Really doesn't know. He's so self-absorbed. And so this united nation of Israel turns into two kingdoms. So in the north, there is the kingdom of Israel. And in the south, there is the kingdom of Judah. I don't know if you've ever read through the second half of the book of First Kings and all of Second Kings. What you read about is all these different kings and how they did. Well, that's documenting the time of the, 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 the divided kingdom. Were the kings in the north, what were they like? Kings in the south, what were they like? And what you'll find as you read through the documentary of the lives of these kings is that there's very, 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 very few that remained faithful to the Lord and led the nation as they should. Israel, Judah, were in a bad place. So what happens is that God then uh, figures out a way to open up their eyes, to, to kind of wake them up out of their spiritual lethargy. And what happens is these foreign superpowers come in and take a hold of Israel and take them into exile as captors. And then another superpower comes in and takes the people of Judah and then takes them into captivity. And so I'll show you a map of how this works. It's not a great map, but it'll have to do. The, 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 the purple line, that's the kingdom of Israel being taken into Assyria as captives. And you'll see the green line right there is the people of Judah being taken into captivity. Where are they being taken? Babylonia. The city right there in the middle is Babylon. And you see this orange line is Babylonia sending people who aren't Jews back into this decimated land of Israel where all of it's been laid bare. So when we step back into Psalm 137 and we see verse 1, we have a context to understand something of the frustration, the injustice, the hurt, and the mistreatment that the author is feeling by the waters of Babylon. You see that there's rivers in Babylon. It's going to be the Tigris and Euphrates. This is around about where southern Iraq is today. And so he's sitting in this hot desert sun by the waters, sitting under the willow trees, and they are weeping. It seems kind of like a clash in this opening scene. You'd imagine it to be quite beautiful, sitting under willow trees by a river in the hot sun. I like the sound of that. But they're weeping. They're indulging in these sorrowful remembrances of what it was like to sing songs on Zion to the Lord. As, as the, the, the desert-warmed waters of Babylon go past their eyes, the white-hot tears of anger flow from their eyes. And, and then in verse 2, we, we hung up our lyres on the willows. The spiritual and sacred songs are suspended. We're not going to sing. And look at verse 3 here. This compounds the sense of mistreatment. For there are captors required of us songs. Our tormentors, mirth or entertainment, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. In verse 4, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So not only have these people of Babylonia taken the people of Judah into captivity, they are now mocking those sacred songs that they sung on Zion. Come on, give us a song. They're trivializing something so sacred to the psalmist. How could they do that? 
And that's what he says right there. How can I sing these songs in this location when I feel like a million miles away from where we're supposed to be? We will not trivialize these songs and bring them down to their level. We will not sing. And you'll see this in verses 6 and 7. Let my tongue stick to the roof of of my... Sorry, verses 5. If I... If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Verse 6. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Do you see what they're saying? I'm not going to do this. We're not going to sing these songs for your entertainment. We're lamenting the loss of Zion. And you want us to sing these songs. It says, let my right hand, I would rather my right hand lose its skill. Remember they're musicians, right hand playing a guitar or a lyre or a lute or something, a stringed instrument, you're going to use your right hand. I would rather not be able to, to, to play an instrument at all than sing those songs and bring them down to this level. And then let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth, he says. I would rather not be able to sing at all then bring those songs here and bring them down for your entertainment. I will not trivialize these sacred spiritual songs. They will be suspended. Not going to do it. But here in verse 7 is where the, the anger begins to spill over, the sense of mistreatment and the injustice. Look at verse 7 and then just the beginning of verse 8. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. First couple of lines here. An old daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. So so then there's the introduction of the Edomites. Well, who is the Edomites then? Well, the Edomites used to be uh, friendly neighbors to Israel. They used to get on, seemed to get on okay, friendly international relationship. But then when Babylonia, it appears, came in and took Israel away, it was like their relationship counted for nothing. And the Edomites sat back and did nothing as these people were being taken away into captivity. And instead, they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. And then to Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Do you see, can you capture something of how the psalmist is feeling in the face of mistreatment? Can you sense the injustice? Can you sense the hurt? Can you sense the offense? Can you feel the simmering anger? But here's something absolutely key that I want us to see. In what the psalmist does, the psalmist takes the permission to go to God in the context of God's people and say it how it really is. I'm going to have to say that again because I think this is so, so, so important. The psalmist has the permission, takes the permission, sees the permission to feel it, to recognize it, and then to say it and to state it, and to express it. Do do you see where we are, Lord? Remember this. Remember the Edomites. Remember Babylon. Can you see what's happened to us? Can you see the mistreatment? He seems to see, feel the permission to say it as it is. First point, what do we do with our anger? We admit it. We expose it. We say it. We state it. Now, I hope you've been seeing this as we've been moving through the Psalms. One of, the, one of the aims of this series is to show how the Psalms can be used within the context of the life of the church and how the Psalms can be used in our own lives personally. And what the Psalms do is the Psalms give voice. They, they put words, they give us a vocabulary to use when we don't know what to say. Now, so often when we find ourselves in new seasons, so often when this kind of anger is unearthed or kindled or faced, 
We can find ourselves in places in our lives where we don't know what to say. I mean, how many times are we going through new experiences and, and we're, we're attempting to live faithfully of God's people, as God's people and we do not know what to say. We do not know where to stand. We do not know what we're supposed to think. I don't know how many times I've been there and thought to myself, well, what am I supposed to say in this place? What, what perspective am I supposed to have? How am I supposed to approach this? Well, the Psalms show us, they give us the vocabulary that we need. They put words to our deep-seated emotions when we don't know what to say. The Psalms give us the perspective when we don't know what we're supposed to be seeing or thinking. They give us a place to stand when we don't know where we're supposed to be standing. And the same is true with Psalm 137. Is yet again, just like the rest of the Psalms, we find a permission to go to our Heavenly Father, to cry it out, and to say it, and to state it, to admit how we're doing. God this hurts. I'm angry. I'm fed up. I've been mistreated. And it really stinks. Lord, remember this. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but over the last 18 months, we've talked about this quite a lot. We've talked about the permission to say how it really is. Permission to go to God and say what you're feeling. And permission to bring it into the context of the church community, God's people, and to shoulder what we're going through together. Now, there's a reason I think this is really important to talk about, and that's because we live in a very specific culture that often tells us it's not okay to express how we're doing. Now, it may be a newsflash to you, but we live on a wonderful island. We live in Britain, don't we? And British people, what, what are we known for? We're known for a stiff British upper lip, stiff upper lip, aren't we? And what's the stiff upper lip? You don't express. That's what it is. The world can be falling apart <laughs> and you say you're fine. Something amazing and life-changing has just happened and we might break a smile, just might. Now, now, now let's take this because we're, we're, we're part of Britain for sure, but we're also part of a subculture in Britain called Suffolk. And in Suffolk, people from outside of Suffolk uh, recognize that we have the British stiff upper lip, but it's turned up to 11. And, and it's something we call, or other people call, the Suffolk Reserve. Now, now, I get to say this, because a lot of you don't know this, on my birth certificate, it says number 20, Orchard Close. I live a stone's throw from where my first home was. You want to talk about roots? Somebody who's born and raised Suffolk, you're, you're looking at him, born and raised, rough and cut, that's me. So I feel like I get to say this. But in our part of the world, our culture says... It's not okay to express. You don't interfere with other people's lives. You do your thing, we'll do our thing. We don't really shoulder it together. Often how it works. Now, now churches, when we find ourselves in a very specific culture, every church in the world needs to do this. We need to pick apart the culture around us to see how elements of the culture help us and how elements of the culture can hinder our worship and faithfulness. You know, if, if we were a church in chilly. We'd ask the question, how is the culture around us helping us or hindering us? If we were a church in, I don't know, uh, Swaziland, we'd ask the same questions, wouldn't we? We'd say, how is it helping us, how it's hindering us? Now, when one comes to Suffolk, there's, an, there's some amazing things about Suffolk culture I just love. Something about Suffolk people, they're incredibly loyal. I've, nev I've never seen a people group who can be this loyal. When Suffolk people give you their loyalty, they will never, ever let go. And with Suffolk people, that, that gives a sense of reliability. When they say they're going to do something, you can bet your house on the fact that they will get it done. That's how it works around here, and I absolutely love it. But something about the Suffolk culture that, that I think we need to be wary of is the Suffolk Reserve. 
which very often communicates to us in subversive ways that we don't always see. Don't talk about how you're doing. Don't express it. Just keep your head low just where everyone else is. And so here's what we need to be mindful of, is that the stoic Suffolk psyche can infiltrate and affect the vibrancy of the Christian's emotional life. And we need to be aware of that. That the Suffolk reserve can infiltrate the way we go about the diverse and very real emotions that it's completely okay to express to our God and in the context of a Christian community as we shoulder it together. That is completely okay to do. And we find the uh, permission to admit it and to say it. And my, my granddad was, was the last of a generation of some wonderful East Anglian gentlemen. And, and what we would often do is, is me and my brother would go up to see my granddad and he would take us out for fish and chips. Now, granddad, people would have said about him, he's just not very emotional. He's just not an emotional guy. And I kind of accepted that. Was, okay, that, that's just how he is. He doesn't express much. But, but one day, he takes us out for fish and chips. We jump into the car, and the idea is we, get, we go down Halston High Street, and there's a great chippy on the high street, and he waits outside in the car, and we go in and make our order. Large haddock and chips for granddad. We're going to have cod and chips and buy a bottle of ketchup and a couple of gherkins, and let's get in the car and go eat it. And so what we do is drive through Halston to the car park in the middle. And the whole idea would be we'd find a, a, a parking space. There's usually two or three, loop our way round and get, in, get into the space and eat our fish and chips. But one day we were driving past and there was one parking space and it was very obvious. So we looped our way around and obviously someone else had done the same thing from the other side, but Grandad really wanted this parking space. So it seemed like a game of chicken right there, but this person obviously had the slightly faster car and a bit more resolve because they zipped into the parking space that far, it seemed, from Grandad's front bumper. And I saw Grandad express his motion in a way I've never seen before. A, t- a torrent of swear words just started coming from his mouth. Granddad, I've never heard you say this before. Grand- what? Our jaws just hit the floor. The horn went on for ages. He's smacked the dash and then just shouting and all kinds of things came out of his mouth. It would have said he wasn't an emotional guy. I'm like, no, 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 no. He's evidently emotional. Just like all of us. But in, for some reason in that moment, there was a permission to say how he felt. So often, I think we need permission. When it comes to diverse emotions of our lives, when it comes to the anger at mistreatment, the worst thing we can do is begin to smash it down and pretend it's not there. Because if, I don't know, if the Psalms don't show us this, and I don't know what does, that we get to go to our God and be completely real and raw. That we get to be in the context of a Christian community and shoulder these things together. This is not okay. It really hurts. We're allowed to admit it. So I'm going to give you some permission here. Some permission that I think think would be helpful. You're allowed to tell God how you feel. You're allowed to go to Him with all of the rawness of what you're going through and say it to him. I've got a funny feeling he's not going to be surprised. You can go to God. You're allowed to overflow with gratitude when everyone else isn't. You're allowed to overflow with thanksgiving when everyone else isn't. You're allowed to communicate when it's been a rubbish week or a rubbish year. You're allowed to express the full-throttled joy of knowing God's grace. 
You're allowed to ask big questions and bring it out into the open so we can discuss together. You're allowed to feel confused. You're allowed to admit your sins and the frustrations that it brings to bring it to your heavenly Father and shoulder it with the rest of God's community. You're allowed during sung worship to fling your arms up in the air in surrender and praise. You're allowed to be real with people in your community group. You're allowed to be honest to God even when it seems like you aren't conforming to everyone else around you and how they feel. You're allowed to smile when other people aren't. You're allowed to cry when other people aren't. You're allowed to bring your pains and joys to the Father and to shoulder it with everyone else. You're allowed to go to the Father as a free-spirited, cherished child in the family of God. You're allowed to do this. The psalmist takes the permission. And when it comes to anger and mistreatment, you can say it. You can feel it. You can state it. You can express it. Point one. You could admit it. Go to God and shoulder it with others. But, but there's more here, isn't there? The second point here. Because when it comes to expressing how we feel, it's not just an unhinged, reckless expression of emotion. That could lead to chaos. <laughs> that can lead to confusion if it's completely unhinged. We need to think about how we're expressing, right? Well, how do we express this anger? Point two, we direct it. Look at what the psalmist does, verse seven again. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. And now the language ramps up again. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you in what you have done. And then the language just seems to get stomach-turning and alarming, and you feel the gasp as you read this. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Now, what are we supposed to make of that? Are, are we supposed to pray these kinds of prayers? And when we feel angry and mistreated, do we, do we say that kind of stuff? Well, here's what we need to see from these last couple of verses. Is that when we feel that kind of anger, it's important not to hold on to it. It's, not, it's, it's important for us not to say, justice belongs to me. Revenge, that'll be mine. And so I'm going to make sure that the full repayment and justice is done in my own strength. You know when we take that approach, that's when anger poisons us. That's when it comes out in helpful ways. That's when it hurts people around us and continues to hold us in the chains of resentment. But what does the psalmist do with the anger? It doesn't hold it here and let it fester. The psalmist holds it out because it's directed. But directed to who? To God. For what? For justice. God remember. You can remember. You can bring justice. You can make it right. And so the psalmist, get this, it's crazy. The psalmist is finding comfort in God's wrath. God will deal with it. I can give it to him because I know he's a God who is so loving that he will not allow that mistreatment to be swept under the rug and forgotten about. That my God will make things right and nothing, nothing he's going to turn a cold shoulder to right here. It will all be sorted out. Now, what we call these, these kinds of verses at the end of Psalm 137, particularly this violent stuff, there's a fancy word we use for this. It's called an imprecation. It's a cool word, an imprecation. You remember that? It's an imprecation. And when you find an imprecation in a psalm, it's called an imprecatory psalm when it has that kind of violent language. My question is, should we be praying it, though? 
It's one thing to be God-directed in our anger and not to hold on to it here, but to hold it out there and direct it to him. There's another thing to say, should we pray with that kind of violent language? I think I found a quote that will help us a little bit. It's by Tremper Longman from a commentary in the Psalms I was reading. When we are deeply harmed and our anger boils, it would be both fruitless, God reads our hearts, and dangerous to suppress those emotions rather than turning them over to God. And that's the important point. The imprecations are not just expressions of anger. They allow us to turn our anger over to God for Him to act as He sees fit. These prayers do not ask God for the resources and opportunity to take vengeance on our enemies. They ask God to do so and acknowledge His freedom to act or not act as He sees fit. In this way, the imprecations conform to the advice Paul gives to his readers in Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with, peaceably with all. Here we go. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. So, so Paul in Romans 12 encourages his readers to take comfort in the wrath of God. And what does he mean by that? Vengeance belongs to the Lord. He will deal with it. He's a God who is so full of love that he looks at all of the mistreatments you have ever been through and says, I will deal with that. It's not going to be water under the bridge in a few weeks. I'm not going to brush it under the carpet. I will not turn a, a cold shoulder to that kind of a mistreatment and that injustice. It will be dealt with in this life or at the judgment when Jesus comes back and he judges the living and the dead, just like we say in the Apostles' Creed. It will be dealt with. And so you see what that enables the psalmist to do. It enables them to not hold the anger here and have it poison their lives, but to hold it out and to direct it to God. God, you will deal with this. So the psalmist directs their anger. And I want to show you another quote by a a, a really fantastic theologian called Miroslav Volf. Great name. But he's a guy, he's he's, uh, from Croatia. And so he kind of laments what his Croatian people went through during the wars and the violence in former Yugoslavia. And he finds comfort in God's wrath. Follow this. It's a complex quote, but I think we can do it. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love. And God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of war in the former Yugoslavia, a region from which I come. Talk about this for mistreatment. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where over 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to that carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? by refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, but I came to think I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. 
God is wrathful because God is love. You see, Miroslav's Volf, Miroslav Volf's conclusion in the face of such mistreatment of a giant people group, profound mistreatment that affected him and many others, was to find a rest, was to find a comfort in the reality that God will not let that mistreatment go, and it will be dealt with. And, and that enables something of a more healthy dealing with our anger, not one that tears us apart on the inside, not one that comes out in unhelpful moments into the lives of people around us and results in more hurt, but the kind of anger that can be directed to God, comfort in the knowledge that God will come and He will judge. He brings justice. Now that doesn't mean, now this, let me be clear, it doesn't mean we don't speak out. Just because God does show His perfect justice and will do, that doesn't mean we remain silent when people offend us in profound ways. When people break the law against us, we, we pursue that. We are people of justice in this life, after all, because our God is a God of justice. We seek justice, we say it. We make it right, for sure. But Psalm 137 is showing us the direction of our anger. Does that mean we are silent in the face of those who mistreat us? No. Most often it's good to bring it out in the open, to talk about it, to reason with it, to, to face it. But Psalm 137 is showing us the direction of the anger. And it's not here. It's not, I will take revenge. It's not justice ultimately belongs to me. But there's a comfort in the wrath of God. So we direct our anger just as the psalmist does. But there's one more thing here. One more point. We turn our anger. What do I mean by that? Well, some of you are sitting there thinking to yourself, I hope you won't say the word forgiveness. Well, I've just said it. It's about forgiveness. Now, did you see at the end of this psalm, there was rather alarming language. Blessed be he who takes your little ones, turns your stomach, and dashes them against the rocks. See, the psalmist's logic here is that justice will be done and things will be made right when their little ones are dashed. Now, this is something the Babylonians did, known for their brutality in history, an awful bunch of people. They treated the people they took a hold of just awfully. War crimes galore. They, they were just rotten. And they would go in, they would smash the city to pieces, just like they did with Jerusalem, smash the homes, pillage the people, exploit them, and take them away as captors. But the ultimate act of brutality they would do to their captors is to take the little ones and dash them, throw them against the rocks. So, so follow the logic of the psalmist. He says right there that things will be made right when that happens to the little ones. But little did the, little did the psalmist know that 600 years later, there was a little one who was going to be dashed. But not against rocks, but against a cross. God's little one, Jesus, dashed to make things right. You see the cry of the psalmist, if that happens it will be made right. But in, in Jesus Christ we begin to see God's plan to deal with mistreatment and to begin to make things right. You see, we know Jesus Christ lived the life we couldn't live without sin. But then at the cross we see this collision of several things. We see a collision of God's love. We see a collision of, of God's opinion of our mistreatment of others. At the cross we see God's opinion of our mistreatment of Him. And at the cross, we see God's opinion of the mistreatment against you and I. 
At the cross, we see God's opinion of injustice and the hurt and the offense and the anger we feel at mistreatment. And at the cross, we see God's desire to forgive. We see this collide together all in one. But here hangs God's little one on the cross. The the one who said, love your enemy. The one who said, bless those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. Forgiveness? 70 times 7. Oh, in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You see, God does begin to make things right in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. I think forgiveness is the hardest thing possible ever to do. So this isn't easy whatsoever. But forgiveness needs to be part of our journey on the process of overcoming anger in the face of mistreatment. You see, the cross is powerful to us with two types. It's like a double liberation. In in the cross, we have a liberation that we can know that our mistreatment of others, and and if you're anything like me, it's everywhere. And my mistreatment of God and my sin against God and others can be washed, can be cleaned, can 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 be sorted, and I can be given a new hope, a new heart. I can be completely changed. There's a power in the cross to do that, but there's also a power in the cross to help us to begin to forgive those who mistreat us. Because the one on the cross cried out, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they do. And in the cross, we begin to find a power to walk that incredibly arduous, messy and painful journey towards forgiveness. Now, I, I know this isn't easy. I get really, really bothered when people make forgiveness an easy thing. Just, just get over it. No, no. You can't trivialize the intensity of some of the injustice and the mistreatment and the anger that we feel. We don't want to make light of that. It's huge. That can ruminate for decades inside of us. It can distort and warp so much the revenge can eat away. This is not small. Forgiveness is not easy. But Jesus seems to show us a better way. Father, forgive them. The path of life. The path where the chains of revenge and resentment begin to undo. And we experience the freedom of stepping into the fruit of forgiveness. You see, we turn our anger from resentment and revenge into the fruit of forgiveness. I told you this wasn't going to be easy, and it's not. But remember what the psalmist does, states it to the Lord, knowing that it's hard. But the psalmist also communicates this within the context context of God's people. We're in the context of a Christian community. We shoulder this together. Facing the anger, the injustice. Facing all of those emotions that well up from mistreatment is not easy, but I think Psalm 37 shows us something of a path to freedom from the poisoning of anger at mistreatment. So what do we do? We admit it. And here's the permission again. It's okay to bring it to the Lord. He's not going to be surprised, and we're here to shoulder it together. We direct our anger. doesn't mean we're silent, doesn't mean we don't fight for injustice in this life. We must. But it means we direct our anger to God, finding comfort in his justice and judgment. And we turn our anger, the hardest bit of all of this, from the resentment and the revenge that anger has bought maybe for decades. And in the strength of Jesus and the power of the cross, we turn it into the fruit of forgiveness. And we said at the beginning, there is help and there is hope for our anger. May we be the kind of people 
who catch sight of that today. Now, I want to spend some time praying for us because I know this isn't easy. And I'm going to extend the prayer out a little bit so we can process our way through some of this together. So I'd love it if you could pray with me. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we want to thank you for the raw expressions in Psalm 137. As the psalmist sat on the banks of the waters lamenting the mistreatment. As the psalmist felt the mockery, felt the abandonment of the Edomites, wanted justice for the Babylonians. Lord, way too often in our lives we face the genuine sense of mistreatment. We know the injustice. And sometimes it seems to last for decades. But Father, we pray you'd help us. We don't want the anger to poison us any longer. We don't want the anger to have a hold of us and end up hurting us and others around us. So so we pray you would help us to do exactly what the psalmist does. Help us to admit it. Not to suppress it and to bottle it and let it fester. But to bring it to you. Knowing that you are our Father and in Jesus Christ we approach you as your sons and daughters. You want to hear from us and you are not surprised. And Lord, we pray you'd help us direct our anger. Direct it to you, your justice, your judgment. Lord, may we find comfort in your wrath, knowing that you will not let this be swept under the rug. You will deal with it, and you will make it right, because your son was dashed upon a cross. And Lord, we pray you would help us to turn our anger. Help us to turn our revenge and our resentment. Help us to turn all those twisted emotions that distract us, that steal our joy, that chain us up and take away freedom. Help us to turn that anger and turn it into the fruit of forgiveness. Lord, we recognize that's not easy. We need your strength. We need the power of the cross. Every single step of turning our anger. But we ask for your help knowing you are faithful, you are just, you are bound in mercy and steadfast love, and you want the best for us. To help us, Lord, by your strength, to be able to utter the same words of the one whom we are united with, Jesus, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they did. Lord, we need your help, and we know you're quick to give us our help. You are for us. Help us. We're praying in Jesus' name. Amen.